0: Tuesday, April twelfth. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel.
1: Happy Tuesday. Same to you. It's it's almost Wednesday, which rounds to the weekend. Wow. This is just how I think these days. <laughs> is this your mentality these <laughs> days? Roughly my mentality. Yeah.
0: Because you've got uh, a child who's under the age of one, and yeah. your entire life revolves around the central question: When can I nap? Yeah, roughly. Yes. <laughs> So, no wonder you're already thinking about the weekend. There are a couple of things I want to get to, including one of the things you've been writing about recently. But one of the stories we have talked about on this podcast and also on the radio show that's played out over the last couple of months is the, the drama and the carnage that has happened at Valiant Pharmaceuticals. And for those unfamiliar, Go back in time, just six months, seven months, and Valiant Pharmaceuticals, uh, based in Canada. I believe Jim Gilley said uh, one time when he was here recently that it was the curse of becoming the largest public company in Canada. That if you look at the track record of companies that become Blackberry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Garmin might have been on that list. Maybe. I'm not sure, but Blackberry yeah. definitely was. But. It, Anyway, go back six, seven months, Valley Pharmaceuticals was trading roughly eight to nine times higher than it is right now. and then a series of missteps and investigations into their accounting have led them to, I don't want to say they're on the brink of bankruptcy, but but they are very troubled. but not a public company, but something that is sort of in almost in terms of parallel tracks in terms of excitement, And that is a company called Theranos, which uh, is a private company that simplified or purported to have radically simplified blood testing. Do I have that right? Yeah. And the that you could do complicated blood tests with a
1: finger prick drop of blood rather than a vial pulled out of your forearm.
0: And uh, and part of the Theranos story is the story of the woman who leads it the founder of the company Elizabeth Holmes who is 32 years old any time i've seen her being interviewed uh, just comes off as as brilliant multi-billionaire yes um, and yet Theranos in a smaller way finds itself facing similar questions not not necessarily about their accounting but about sort of their practices and the the viability
1: of their product and th- Theranos is not a public company, but I was talking to some investors recently. We were just kind of saying this off the cuff. If Theranos was a public company, shares would be down ninety percent in the last six months.
0: What goes? Likely. To you, what goes through your mind when you watch stories like this playing out? Because you're, I'm neither of us is an investor in Theranos, and I'm assuming, and and I'm not, and I'm assuming you're not a, a shareholder of Valley Pharmaceuticals. So no. we get to watch from the sidelines. But as you yeah. watch it, what? As you watch it plays out, what goes through your mind? Well, look, this is uh, grossly hindsight. I can say this with the benefit of hindsight. So, this is
1: not any indictment on what people should have believed six months or a year ago. But I'm always fascinated by these stories when the downfall seems pretty obvious. And when you go back in hindsight and see what people were thinking during the run-up, when these companies were on top of the world, and it seems like journalists and investors just fell in love with the story and didn't scratch any deeper than the story with theranos it was this charismatic founder she's uh, she's 30-something years old, and she's, she's a multi-billionaire. And just like Steve Jobs, she only wears the same kind of shirts every day. She's the next Steve Jobs. And there's these glowing profiles made of the company. And if you go back a year and you read these, almost none of the profiles that talk about how Theranos is changing the world and you know the next Steve Jobs, none of them said, really, what does the product do? How does the product work? Like, no, no one really dug that deep into it. Uh, they just got so enamored with the story of success. And I think it's the same with Valiant in that a lot of the run up and the hype about Valiant when it was doing well was it's the most popular stock among hedge fund managers. These really smart investors love it. And therefore, it's a transformative company. In hindsight, they were buying drugs with a lot of debt and, and hoping it'd work out for the best. So that's easy to see in hindsight. But there is a lot of these stories, I think, where people in journalism, especially, just fall in love with a good story, and if the story is good enough to tell, they're going to keep telling it over and over again. And it's almost like they don't want to look pat; they don't want to pull back the curtain and say what's going on here because the story is so much fun to tell.
0: I don't know if we've talked about this on Market Foolery, but you had the chance, somewhat recently, to sit down with Bethany McLean. Yeah who, uh, for for those unfamiliar, Bethany McLean, an author, uh, had the chance to interview her for the radio show a few years back for a, a book she had uh, co-authored about the financial crisis. And Bethany McLean uh, made her bones, as they say, as the first prominent journalist, and I think she was, I, I want to say she was in her 20s at the time. Late 20s, early 30s, I think she maybe, was maybe yeah. 27 years old when she was I think at Fortune magazine, yep. and was writing about Enron and was the first journalist that I can remember because the Enron story from 15, 20, you know, 15, 16 years ago was not dissimilar from Valiant Pharmaceuticals. It was this energy company that was engaging in selling and reselling energy on different platforms. It was. Uh, the, but no one really knew what that meant. Right. It was they're the eBay of energy companies. Like, what does
1: that mean? Like, that sounds awesome, but what does that mean? And we know in hindsight, of course, there really wasn't much of a business going on. It was just a lot of shell games going on. But yeah, it's it's true for Enron too that we just people got enamored with the story, and it was very difficult to look past the story because the story was so fun to tell. And Bethy McLean was one of the first was one of the first people who who just asked the question,
0: "What do you guys do?" Right. How do you make money? How does I, this I work? see that you are making money, but what are you doing? Or, I see that you claim, on your income statement, that you're making
1: money. And it's funny how much pushback that got. There's a famous, if you've seen the documentary, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about the fall of Enron. Great a, documentary. Yeah, it's, really, it's really well done. There was uh, During an analyst conference call, um, You know, CEOs have conference calls to talk about their quarterly earnings, and analysts can ask questions. One of the analysts back in like 2000, when Enron was still doing well, said, uh, "I don't understand why Enron can't produce a cash flow statement." And the response from CEO Jeff Skilling was, "He called him a jackass." <laughs> and that's a perfect example, I think, of you know, this one analyst was one. He, I, I have no idea who that analyst was. Asked the question like, How, "What are you guys doing?" And the response instantly is like don't ask questions. Like We're just telling a story. Don't, don't ask how the story came about. We just want to tell the story." And that happens a lot. Of course, it's only obvious in hindsight when that happens. But it's almost certain that that's happening right now. It sounds crazy to say, and I, I won't venture a single guess as what this might be, but it's, I think it's almost certain that there is a large, well-known, household name company right now that is effectively a fraud. That's a kind of a shocking statement. I'm not going to who I have no idea who it might be. But if you go back history, that's almost always the case that at any given time there is a well-known company that the story is so much more complicated than you think it is.
0: You mentioned Skilling. Skilling was the one who um, went to the editors at Fortune Magazine when Bethany and McLean started asking these tough questions, yeah. and basically said to them, "Get her out of here. Yeah. Like fire her. I don't want her." Especially I- because she was in her twenties
1: at the time, it right. just made this appearance of who's this kid poking around. We want her out of here.
0: And she was right. She was absolutely right. You, we do. I mean, we do love a good story, and as investors, and, let's face it. Sometimes the good story works out. Sometimes it is sure.
1: Sometimes it is Mark Zuckerberg right. and you should fawn over him and he does go on to change the world. But I think that the takeaway for me, and it's so hard to implement this in practice, but what I learned from this is that the reason we love good stories is because huge success is very rare. So that's why we love the story of someone who just knocks it out of the park. But because it's so rare means that we should be more skeptical about it when we think we see it.
0: Speaking of knocking it out of the park, uh, you had written something recently in an article entitled "It was a good bet when the odds are in your favor and you still lose, that's something that we see play out in sports all the time. yeah, but it's uh, I don't want to say it's it's rarer in the investing world than it is in the sports world, but I, I guess when I read your article, one of my thoughts at the time was, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm I'm a little more surprised. I'm a little more surprised when the numbers that are very much in any investor's favor don't really play out that way. And, and the example that you use is is not just an investment that doesn't work out, it goes completely south.
1: Yeah. So, I talk about in the article, uh, there's a hedge fund manager named Monish Pabrai. He's a phenomenal investor and a really great guy. I have a lot of respect for him. And back in 2007, he was investing in a company called Delta Financial. Uh, and regulations dictated that all of his portfolio all the stocks that he owned must be made public uh, when you're a large head fund manager you have to disclose what you own so a lot of other investors noted that Monash perbri is investing in Delta Financial and they kind of piggybacked off of him and within months Delta Financial went bankrupt and so this was a high profile investing that it, investment that he owned a lot of followers were, were were they owned the stock just because he did and then it goes kaput And soon after, Monish Pabria gave an interview in Smart Money magazine, and Smart Money magazine said, "Like Delta Financial, what happened? Like, what's going on there?" And Monish effectively said, uh, "You know, yeah, it it didn't turn out okay, but it was still a good investment." And they kind of said, "Like, what? What do you mean?" Uh, And he he basically said, even in in hindsight, he would have done the same thing because it was a good bet. And it's so hard to wrap your round your head around, like this company went bankrupt and lost everything. And he's still saying it was a good bet, but I think he's absolutely right, that all investing is a game of probabilities. And even if you have an investment where the odds are way in your favor, there's an 80 or 90% chance at, of success that still implies a, 20, a 10 or 20% chance of failing. So, if you're making a lot of investments, even if they're great bets, uh, you're going you're, you're, you're to lose on some of them. And the, the hard thing is uh, realizing that not all bad investments are the result of bad decisions. You can make a really good decision that you shouldn't regret in hindsight, even if it turns wrong. And That's always going to be true in investing. Some of the best stock pickers in the world are wrong a third of the time, or half the time. They still do well over time, uh, because they're, they're making such good bets that the half of the stocks they own that do well do extraordinarily well. And, the, and But it's easy for us to, I think, criticize and say, look, Bill Ackman owns Valiant, like we're just right. saying. Like that idiot, what was he thinking? It may be, and this contradicts what we just talked about, so maybe this isn't the best example. It may be that even in hindsight, Valiant was a good investment. It's just, you know, the odds, there, there's no such thing as 100% odds in investing. So even if you're taking really good bets, you're going to be wrong part of the time. I also wrote in the article a quote from Jeff Bezos where he says, if you have a, 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 a one in 10 chance, of making a hundred times your money. You should take that bet every single time. That's a phenomenal bet. But it means you're going to be wrong 90% of the time. And it's really hard for investors to wrap their head around that. But for everybody, and this goes not only for individual stock picks, but just for uh, broad market returns in general, You know, if you if you lose money over the next year, if the S and P 500 declines over the next year, that doesn't mean that you, as an investor, made a mistake by being a stock market investor. You know, during the next year, it just means you're playing a game where the odds don't add up to hundred in every time period. So you're going to have periods where you lose, but it doesn't mean you made a bad decision.
0: Well, and that, and Bezos goes on uh, with a baseball analogy of his own, just saying, you know, the whole the whole notion of hitting a home run in an investing is is off because in baseball, if you hit a home run, it's one point. It's one run, and the most runs you can get if the bases are loaded is four. In investing, you can score 10 runs, 20, 100 runs off of one single investment, depending on how long you let it run and how yeah. much you can compound.
1: And I think it's th- this fact, I think, is one of the distinguishing characteristics of why a lot of people don't succeed in investing is because they associate a bad investment with a mistake that needs to be corrected. What did I do wrong in this investment? How can I make sure I never do it again? And sometimes that's the right mentality. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes your thinking, your analysis, was spot on, and you should keep doing the same type of thinking and analysis, even if you have a couple investments in a row that don't work out.
0: A couple of housekeeping notes before we wrap up. Uh, first, we have a new Facebook group that we've created for our podcast team. It's if you go on Facebook, you can just search Motley Fool Podcasts. Um, it's a, a private group that you can join. Um, just search for Motley Fool Podcasts on Facebook and uh, join the conversation. Yeah. With, with the podcasting crew and other listeners just like you. Our email address is MarketFoolery at fool.com. We've already started to get some email, but please send in more because next week is our one thousandth episode of Market Foolery. So if you have one memory you can share, it can be it can be something funny. It can be a good call we made on a stock pick, or frankly, just as likely, a bad call that we made. But uh, any memories you have, just email us marketfoolery at You have one you want to share?
1: I, I have one marketfoolery memory. Okay. It's going to start off. Uh, I, I hate to admit that for a while, early on in the show, I never listened to it, mainly because I just didn't listen to podcasts at all. But we were on a bi- I was on a business trip with uh, three Motley Fool employees, coworkers in California, and we were driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles, which is not a short drive. I' was gonna say what is,
0: that's ten hours. Is that a 10 hour? R-
1: yeah, about. and it's not a pretty drive either. <laughs> so this is kind of a this is kind of a long day, you know. Um, no offense to our listeners in Stockton, California. Not a pretty city though. <laughs> And so we're we're on this long drive, we're just trying to pass the time listening to what we can. And one of the coworkers said, Oh, let's listen to market foolery and we started listening to it and I remember thinking, This is really good. That's good. This uh, is a really this is a really good podcast. This is a good and way to of, kill time. I kinda of regretted that you know, the show was maybe a year or two old at that point and I hadn't I hadn't really listened to it and then and I regretted it. So I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> That's okay. I've I have i have already gotten an email from people who have started listening right when we started back in early twenty eleven. Email from people who just started listening a few months ago. So um, all you know, all are welcome here at MarketFoolery mm-hmm. because again, it's a free podcast. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of MarketFoolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.